welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Oh my gosh, it's been a while. Thanks for sticking around. I hope your summer is off to a great start around here. So far, so good. I released the trailer to my film about wreck swimming last week, and the response has been very positive. Of course, I love doing this podcast because I enjoy interviewing people and hearing their stories. What the film lets me do is to combine stories from several people into a larger narrative and, of course, add visual imagery as well. I also enjoy doing that with my podcasts. If you want to try something beyond the straight one-on-one to tell a more engaging story, shoot me an email, chris at lifesciencemarketingradio.com, and I can point you to a few examples. Now, let's jump into today's episode. Jason Scharf is an experienced strategy leader and active angel investor in the life science and digital health sectors with 40-plus investments from seed to Series B. He has built and led teams in strategic planning, market intelligence, and innovation at large biopharma, genomics, and medtech companies, including Illumina, Becton Dickinson, and Amgen. He's also the co-host of the upcoming podcast, Austin Next, which is an exploration of Austin's transformation into the next great innovation hub and what it takes to accelerate the growth of an ecosystem. Look for that to be launching this summer. Jason, welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio. Thanks for having me, Chris. We've chatted on the San Diego Biotech Network podcast before and a couple of curated cocktail events, but this is the first time here. So today we're going to talk about resilience at the company level, which is a little bit of a stretch from what we usually do, but I think it's interesting and important to consider. I think you're going to learn a lot because if you think about what Jason's about to tell you about planning for unlikely scenarios, you might also uncover some immediate competitive advantages. So Jason, first describe what you mean by resilience in this corporate context and why people should be thinking about it. Well, over the last 18 months at pretty much every level, the individual, the firm, at society, we've seen a huge number of shocks to the system, right? Whether that's COVID, obviously. Here in Texas, we had the big ice storm in February. The recent shortages of chips, lumber, you name it. And then over the last, like, what, two weeks, two major ransomware attacks hitting our energy and food infrastructure. So it's kind of a bit like, hey, we have these off the wall, non stochastic type of events. And how do we think about them? And one of the other things that's become clear in this time frame is with the adoption of just in time inventory and these really long and complicated supply chains, we've had great benefits from the efficiencies and low cost that come with them. But we've also learned the hard way that these processes are extremely fragile. And when there's correlated shocks, it really spins out of control. Like the example, we had that cargo ship being stuck in the Suez Canal for a week. You wouldn't think one ship in one canal would cause so much damage, but it was billions and billions of dollars of damage. And that was on top of the already current shortage. How we handle these shocks is really bubbling up to the top of discussions now. We're starting to ask, how do we prevent or anticipate them if that's even within our control? How do we weather the storm, no pun intended, 
And then how do just to get through the other side of the crisis? And then what becomes, I think, the most interesting question is how do we adapt or pivot into a new norm? One of the biggest non-health impacts of COVID is this the supercharging of trends that we've been released expecting to come to fruition at the end of the decade and instead is coming 10 years early or within kind of 12 months. We doubled e-commerce share of retail. Remote work went from in the single digits to I'm guessing probably going to land somewhere in 20% of workers when whatever the new equilibrium comes out to be. And then in our realm of health, telehealth, once the regulatory shackles were removed, we saw a nearly 3,000% increase in services delivered. Really gets back to your question, if we're trying to get through the shock and just back to normal, you're likely to be behind your competition and scrambling to adjust to whatever the new rules of your industry are instead of actually defining them and leading them. Yeah, that's a great point. And yeah, it's an interest. The whole thing is interesting. As you mentioned at the very beginning, we've basically uh, boiled everything down to the minimum to make things fast and cheap. And then when things go wrong, then and maybe it's not going the way you thought it would. But yeah. And then with the acceleration of all those trends, now are you in the position you want to be in? So talk a little bit about fragility, resilience, anti-fragility. Yeah, so I think we're going to see the reactions fall into three basic categories. So the first group is, call it the way things were, right? And that's, I'm not necessarily saying this is a bad move. It's, it's going to be the, look, I look at the current methodology and the benefits of whatever that methodology is, whether it's just in time or these supply chains as an example, it outweighs the low probability of these kind of black swan events, right? Like I'll just take the hit when they happen. They're not really going to happen that often. And I'm able to really do low cost, efficient, whatever it may be. The second group I think is what we're going to call like the resilient group. And resilience here is the ability to strengthen your reserves to be able to handle these kind of shocks. So it's a firm taking out an insurance policy, whether literally or figuratively, so that you spend a little bit extra today to make sure when the crisis is over, I'm back to where I was, right? The last groups, the ones who really prepare the strategy and company that they'll actually come out stronger from a shock, right? So this is what we'll call the anti-fragile group. And so the first time I heard about the concept of anti-fragility was from Nassim Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile. So this is a lot taken from his stuff. I'm going to use a bit of a cultural, a pop culture stuff to really explain what I think of the difference between resilience and anti-fragile. So I'm hoping enough people of your listeners have seen the Avengers movies, so... I think this will be, it will help. And I want to compare like the suits of Iron Man and Black Panther, right? So Iron Man suits are all bulletproof. They're able to protect him against no matter what villain, what they throw at him, missiles, bullets, et cetera, right? In the end, it's a protective shield around him to be able to move forward and do what it is that he actually wants to do. Black Panther on the other side, his suit actually absorbs the energy of what the villains are throwing at him, right? So he absorbs that energy and then he's actually able to use that back against the bad guys. So the stronger the hit he takes, the stronger he becomes. So you think about it that way, I think of Iron Man being resilient. He's strong, powerful, able to take what's given. But Black Panther is the epitome of being anti-fragile, where he's able to take that, the shocks to the system, but actually come out stronger. I like it. First of all, that's a winner to <laughs> pull out the... Don't at me if Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe is not the right context for this, but pop culture references, that's probably the all-time winner on this show. Yeah, so we're mostly talking about long-tail risk and things with a small probability, but a huge impact. What are the options for ensuring, if we take that approach, the sort of the resilience 
approach. Yeah. So we can think of it like the inventory you hold. So we're going to increase our inventory. We saw lots of mass shortages. So if I'm a hospital, I'm just going to increase the number of masks that we hold in reserve. When you're thinking about your supplier base, you probably look across different risk strata before. We talked a lot about single source. I don't want a single place to be giving that those components because if they burn down in a fire, then I'm probably in, in deep trouble. But now we're going to be looking at not just single source producers, but where are they located? So if, if there are trade issues or shipping, am I going to have problems getting them to me? If there's a timing issue, should they be physically closer? You think about fortifying, fortify, fortifying your resources. So here in Texas, after the ice storm, we're weatherizing all of our power stations to protect against another 100-year storm. And I think this is a bit about what of the things you think about it, the insurance policy and the resilience is if the numbers hold, probably by the time that we have another winter storm like we just did, we're going to have a completely different power grid. And so that insurance policy, while preventing the, the possibility of it coming sooner, is it really making us stronger for the long term? So generally, when you're insuring your risk, it's what am I willing to spend today to cap my downside? And what about on the other side, on the anti-fragile? Do you have any specific examples of that? Yeah, I think it really comes down to the people rethinking the problem. So we talked about the ability, we talked about like holding mask inventory. Something else that I saw happening was instead of buying up additional mask inventory, I would buy up 3D printers. And there, that actually allowed me to, when I needed the mask, we went and pivoted and, and started printing out masks. When we needed gowns, I could do this. And it actually created a different type of resource that I was able to utilize as a hospital or whoever to really actually strengthen my position. Because if you think about it, if I'm running out of mass, but what if I have the opposite? What if there is positive effects are coming and I need to be able to move quickly and creating more inventory to be able to do higher level surgeries or whatever it may be. So these type of anti-fragile moves allow you to both Again, cap your downside and being ready for it, but also take advantage of positive externalities that go in your direction. So we've, you mentioned different ways of working and business models that have accelerated a whole decade in the last year. How do you think about these things in a way that might uncover potential competitive advantages? Generally, if you see the bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity. And I think a lot of companies right now are starting to grow into the space to provide the anti-fragile infrastructure to others, right? So we had amazing scientific discoveries and how going into the COVID vaccines, but towards the back half of 2020, we saw that the bottleneck started to be in the lack of the cutting edge manufacturing resources close to home. No one had produced mRNA or therapeutics or vaccines before. So this really wasn't an infrastructure that was built there. And generally, if I was looking at innovation, it was like, I wanted to create the next piece of software, the next drug. The idea of doing biomanufacturing innovation just really was not a hot topic. It's the things that are coming underneath. And so that actually then represented a big opportunity. And so some entrepreneurs stepped in. So during the pandemic, a company called National Resilience, which of course it would have been funny to call them National Anti-Fragile instead, but we'll let them have their name. You know, <laughs> they actually launched with a $800 million Series A funding round, which is just an insane number. And yeah. there are who's who of, of the biotech world. On their board, they've got Bob Nelson from Arch Ventures. They've got 
Francis Arnold, a Nobel Prize winner. They have the ex-FDA chief Scott Gottlieb and many more. So this was it's the Avengers of the uh, medical form kind of getting together and <laughs> <Yeah>. saying, <laughs> clearly, this is a problem. And we've seen it. We see that acutely with mRNA, but we're seeing such a growth and change in the life science arena now with CAR T, stem cell, mRNA, like all of these very different DNA medicines, all these kind of really different types of modalities that are not the same as the kind of small molecule or just the normal protein-based building out insulin and fermentation tank. So there's lots of opportunity and we need to get ahead of it that we want to be able to make these new, make these new therapies and manufacture them at scale. Another example, we saw lots of retail outfits and restaurants suddenly found the need to build out an e-commerce arm. It was either that or go under. In this case, we were much farther along, I think, in this past. We had infrastructure companies like Shopify. So I'm not sure if you know your listeners know about Shopify or not, but they are the create kind of the back end ability to easily create e-commerce shops. So from a, your perspective, if I wanted to build out, look, I have to create a ability to search through the pages for my items. I have to create a checkout function. I have to create an invoice function and billing and all of these things. Shopify steps in and the ability to say, oh no, you're gonna do a couple of clicks and we have all of this kind of built and ready for you. And it's been an interesting, there is actually, uh, and there's this whole line of thinking of it's the anti-Amazon alliance in the sense of I can either create my own shop or kind of go through the known platforms. And, and then speaking of Amazon, AWS is another perfect example of kind of this anti-fragile infrastructure that can just turn things on and off in the server level to meet or lower my bill on demand. Nice. Yeah. And then I think the last thing that I think Keep we're going to be seeing opportunities, like again, these big problems, remote collaboration and e-learning, all things that we've all had to deal with. I have three small children and they went to Zoom class for a while and they were able to do okay, but for a lot of people it didn't work. And for some people it worked really well. And so I see similar types of companies starting to pop up in that space. Healthcare generally has been really slow to adopt kind of these new models. I'm hoping with kind of the consumerization, people liked getting doctor's appointments at home. They like getting their medications in the mail. They like being able to use apps like for their normal process to be able to use it for health as well, that we may additionally see some some pickup there and actually have faster healthcare innovation if I to be so bold. Yeah. What do you think? I don't know if I thought healthcare would move faster. I don't know if I had an opinion, but it's certainly a field that's ripe for disruption, according to the people I listen to. And obviously there has been, telehealth has been a, a big thing. And it's certainly nice to be able to talk to your doctor about something where you don't really need to see them in person and they can answer your question, tell you what's going on, write a prescription, whatever. I love that. But is there, are there other opportunities in healthcare? Uh I see the consumerization as being a, a big thing as well. You had the quantified self movement. We had early on, everyone's, I'm gonna, I have my Fitbit, I have all these things that I'm measuring. And so you had, that was a really early adopter phase, but just seeing the remote ability, whether it be through Zoom um, conversation with the doctor to remote sensors. One of the big things that happened over the last couple of years was the heart monitor in the Apple watch. So all of this kind of ability to do non-static health, right? I go in, you see me, I get my lab work, whatever, and I'll see you in a year or two, there's a problem, right? Now the ability to get continuous data through various sensors or to engage with different behavioral apps. One of the interesting things is you see think companies like Paratherapeutics that actually has a depression, an FDA approved depression app, or I think it's Alkali Therapeutics, another one that has a video game that treats autism. 
So it's a really interesting space that really merging the convergence of this kind of, of technological underpinnings with the biology. And I think, and that's just in the direct interface with the patient. When you start getting into the, I think, more sciencey, deep tech type of stuff with synthetic biology and bringing engineering principles to biology or computational biology, where utilizing AI underpinnings to develop drugs, I think there's a lot of really interesting things that are happening. Yeah, that's cool. The other thing I noticed about your examples with a 3D printer and I just had the other one in my head, but seem to oh be an mRNA, structural things, like opportunities to produce mm -hmm. differently. Are there, can you think of, and I'm putting you on the spot here, like just different business models, or would you call that a different business model or opportunities so, that aren't so much insurance, but just, hey, here's a whole so new wide open thing. We tend to focus to your point on product innovation. I think this is across the board. I want to make the shiny new thing versus yeah. business model innovation. I think a great example of that is, and when we got hit with, is infectious disease therapies. If you look at an example like resmedivir from Gilead, and the reason we were able to go take that from, they had that sitting in the bank, is they had developed it for the Ebola outbreak a number of years ago. Now, what tends to happen with the infectious disease market is you have your outbreak, you make your drug, by the time it's all ready to go, the outbreak subsides, and it's just sitting there as a lost asset. And so we haven't seen the kind of innovation, and it's not due to lack of product innovation, it's that financially it doesn't make any sense whatsoever to be going into some of these spaces unless you're going into something like HIV, which is more of a chronic infectious disease. And so an interesting case right. that I saw a couple of years ago, and I'd be surprised, I'd be interested to see if this comes back, I think it was out of Louisiana, where they were moving towards almost a, a subscription model for infectious disease, where instead of paying per treatment as it was given, they would have an ongoing subscription to XYZ company that would then be producing, constantly producing new therapies. So in this case, the company was had a steady stream of income that they were able to use to innovate that the then the state would be getting back a constant stream of new and better anti-infectives, but you wouldn't be necessarily driven to want its usage. Whether we used it or not was not necessarily as important as whether we had this kind of bank of antibiotics or antivirals or whatever it is we needed. And in that case you said was it's pure business model change. I love that example as a former infectious disease person and my limited understanding of how the it's difficult to get people to work on anti bacterials and antivirals because right. 10 days and you're done. Like you give a thing and it, it's hard to, to get the payoff on that. But if you change the model and say, we're going to make it infectious disease therapies that on a subscription yep. model, um, you pay a little bit over time for the opportunity to have it ready when you're, when you need it. That's cool. Talk about scenario analysis and second and third yeah, so order responses. If you're in the company, we want to be able to, how do we better prepare for these kinds of shocks? There's a couple of different tools that strategic thinkers can use to start gaming these things out. So most of the time we all have a plan and sometimes even in the plan you ask, okay, what's the best case scenario? What's the worst case scenario? It's a good start, but it's really understanding what's behind those changes, right? How have my assumptions changed in the best case or worst case? Just saying best case, we do 10% better and worst case, we do 10% worse. That isn't necessarily providing you the information that you need to drive forward. 
but really getting into the specifics about what are the assumptions that have changed. So did we not capture the price advantage we would have thought? Did uh, our competitors respond stronger than we would expect? We got a different formulary teal for reimbursement than we were hoping for. Understanding, or we got a better one, like you obviously look at the upside as well. Understanding what assumptions you can control, what you can influence, what are uncontrollable, really then breaking down to these very specific scenarios that maybe has a few of these things in play and asking, okay, so if this comes to pass, what are we going to do about it? And, and I've seen a lot that people talk about this or spend a little bit, maybe do a tiny bit of financial modeling, but I haven't really seen it done necessarily at scale or budgeting it into the planning process timelines, because I think this is the key thing to say, like, I want when the shock to happen, so not, we're not, I can't predict the future. We can look at some of the likeliest or the most damaging types of things that you can say, hey, this is how we might react or we might go so that when you see it, it's, the, it's not the first time that you can see it. There's the old joke that somewhere in the Pentagon, there is a plan to invade Canada. I don't think we need it, but somebody at least job at some point to say, okay, if things <laughs> are kind hope of, not. Yeah. Um, how do we think about this? How do we dust it off? So at least it's like, hey, we've had some basic understanding of that. And what that gets into is this idea of second and third order thinking, which is not only do, it's about moving beyond static thinking, not just here's the things that I'm going to do. But what is then going to be the response? What is going to be the response from the competitors? What is going to be the response from the customers? What's going to be the response from our partners? And then you can keep going that. And then the third order effect is, okay, what's my response to that? Or what is other people's response to their response? And just being able to game out, things are going to change. We don't live in a static environment. And being able to go a couple of steps, this is the thing, right? Like chess players are always most famous for this is they can go four or five moves ahead and knowing when someone says, just from the chess, like checkmate in 13 moves. Okay, that's pretty amazing when you can do something like that. But it's the same concept here, really just saying, this is gonna be the reaction to, to my move. And that's why you have different tools like wargaming or competitive scenario analysis, where if it's a major launch or a, a significant event enough in your timescale, do you work with your teams and have somebody be the other side? How would you react in this situation? And pull out so that I, I like to always assume that our competition is the smartest and the best. And if they prove me otherwise, that's great in my favor, but be prepared for the kind of, you know, strongest responses. And I think putting these kind of things together through your strategic planning process really well prepares you for when you actually put it into action. Yeah, I think that's great. I find this stuff really interesting. I didn't go to business school. So that's part of the reason why I asked. But I also think a lot of people who listen to this podcast might be earlier in their careers thinking, what can I do to help my own career? And the kind of things you might want to think about, one, the planning you just talked about, two, going to school to learn more about it. So that's the next question. Tell everybody how you learn to think this way and give us some examples because I was not taught to think this way. I learned everything I know on this podcast. I think one of the things, so I went to business school and I think one of the things that happened in that is it's really a lot about for teaching frameworks and understand and then being able to find those things that work well for you. An example I love to give is there's the the 3C4P, I hope I got that right. Yeah, it's a marketing framework that's very academic and something we're taught and I remember when I was an intern, I did my internship at Medtronic Diabetes and I went and talked to 
our VP of marketing uh, as I was going around. I'm like, do, do we implement this here? And she laughed and was like, I haven't seen that since business school. And so this is that first word for me is like, oh, I, I, maybe this stuff doesn't go out. And then a number of years later, when I was at Beck and Dickinson, our chief medical marketing officer was very academic and theory based. So that framework was spread throughout the kind of company. And so it really gets into the things that work for you, the structures, how do I see the world? Does this framework help me do that? And I think some of the things is that you just then continue learning. There's the joke of two by two. You, always put, you see every kind of framework is, is built in a two by two, but it's really just being able to come up with your own, just how do you see, how do you see the world? I consume information everywhere. I read books, listen to podcasts, browse articles. You find those mental models and frameworks that really speak to you and, and then adapt them and use them and start mixing and matching. I've, I've come up with a strategic analytic framework that I use in terms of when looking at ideas and it's a mixture of stuff from BD. It's a mixture of stuff from the where to play, how to win framework. And so you constantly see these things, you put them together and then you say, okay, does this work for me? Do I get more insights by using that? And I think that just being hungry to learn and being flexible with the things that you're learning. Yeah. It just sounds like having a structure for how you're going to think about things doesn't necessarily matter which one, but you find one that works for you. And then you have for any other task, a procedure mm -hmm. that, that simplifies it. This has been really helpful. I hope some people that are inspired by this to think about some new things, different ways of planning for their future. I think whether you're in marketing or somewhere else, this is going to be relevant. Jason Scharf, I'm going to put a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes and also a book that you mentioned to me on our previous con or not a book, a, a YouTube channel called the productivity game that you mentioned to me. It's got a lot of great book reviews on there and it is an extensive library. So if you, even if you're just thinking about a book you already know about and you want to learn a little bit more about it, that would be cool too. But um, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. There you have it. I think it's a really cool concept. I think the silver lining of this pandemic that we're all ready to be done with is that it helps people think about, even aside from the pandemic, to open your mind about new ways of thinking and doing things differently because now you realize at some point you might have to. And so you can come up with lots of different scenarios to say if this, that, or the other thing happened, how would we change how we do business? And I, I just think it's a fun exercise of nothing else. And of course, we're not doing it for fun. Hopefully you're doing it to... Uh, make more money. Let's get right to it, right? So I want to thank Jason again for joining me. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, you know a couple of people and have met on Zoom in the last year with some other people who should be listening. Also, please share it with them. And I will be back in a couple weeks, I promise, because I have another episode scheduled to record this week. And it's going to be great. So good to hear from you all. Bye-bye. 